have a series of books. It's very old. It's 22 volumes, rather small, about five by eight, maybe 150 or so pages per book. It's entitled Christ in the Bible. And I read through that book series, that set of books from time. It's very easy reading because of the great perspective of the author. I read an article this, maybe it was last week, and then another book this week with regard to Christ in the Bible. When we study the scriptures like where we are now, we should certainly, first and foremost, See only Christ. There is this, and there is a, an emphasis here tonight on uh, the southern kingdom and the king, Asa. There is um, an emphasis with regard to the southern kingdom on the sons of David. The Holy Spirit through the, the recorders of chronicles and kings, the scribes, the chroniclers, give to us the account of indeed how God unfailingly follows in keeping his covenant. Now, not all of the kings of the southern kingdom were good. Some of them were bad. Tonight's is good. He's a breath of fresh air. All of the kings of the northern kingdom were evil. But there is this flow of the promise of the son of David and these genealogies that go all the way through until at last, the final genealogy is the genealogy of Jesus, who is the son of David. And it's not necessary after Jesus to follow the genealogy of the sons of David because Jesus is the final fulfillment of the covenant of David as the son of David who comes, of course, in power and, and great glory. So I can't help but think as I read passages like we're going to look at tonight, the details that are kept, the places that are mentioned, and, and, and uh, things that were done, things that were not done, or were done improperly, perhaps. And all of this is a tapestry that is giving to us this wonderful story of redemption that is found in Christ. And this promise follows all the way through the Old Testament. So when we get to a pass, these passages 
that we've been in for some time, Samuel, Chronicles, Kings. We, we must see Christ in these things. And what this, for example, in the time of Asa, what this, what this little space of time, I think he ruled for 41 years, what this little space of time serves as since it's a link to the other links that finally take us to the great king and the great kingdom. And we've already studied, but we'll see a, a, a part of, a, a little piece of that study when we get over to it. The last son of David until God stopped this, this following the son of David in Ezekiel when the southern kingdom was so evil and God left the temple he, and therefore Nebuchadnezzar and his forces could take the temple and destroy the city. And the prophet Ezekiel declares how God had said there won't be another son of David on the throne until the son of David sits on that throne. So we're, we're being led all the way through with one link after another and the details that are worked out. How, you know, God infallibly says that finally the son of David will sit on the throne and you think of the gap, if you want to call it that, whereby at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the last of the succession of sons of David was paused by God, prophet says so, to be restarted by the will of God, finally, in the coming in power and great glory, and the, the destruction, final destruction of Gentile powers. We'll see an uprising of Gentile powers here tonight. It's a, it's a very interesting, albeit brief, account of uh, how these people just come up against Asa and Judah. And how the Lord just, just flows just flows the historical record right on through that. The record is there, but you see God has a divine plan and a purpose and his will cannot be stopped. So we're in this times of the Gentiles and it's the times of nations. And so nation rises against nation in the course of this historical era and kingdom will rise against kingdom. These things must be, Jesus said, until the end, until they come to an end. Jesus mentions himself, the times of the Gentiles coming to an end, the times of the nations. And so we're in that portion of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the toes that are iron mixed with clay. And that's the end of it. all the other kingdoms have come and gone and that's the end of it that's the part 
of Gentile authority that is destroyed by none other than Christ himself, seen as a rock cut without hands and grows into a a mighty mountain to strike the, the feet of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw and it all comes tumbling down and the Bible then teaches us of the great kingdom that lasts a thousand years, the kingdom of Christ and the end of it and the end of everything and the recreation of the universe. And we come to a place like this and we know that Jesus is the reason this story is here and it's just a small link in a chain that cannot be broken. And that's the important thing that I take note of when I study a passage uh, like this. You know, Chronicles and Kings, those are Kings and Chronicles. Uh, those are the kinds of things that uh, we try to pass over quickly. Uh, sometimes there's a good story here. The story of Elijah is in Kings and Elisha, uh, Ahab and Jezebel and uh, other stories through there, but uh, we often want to just pick out those parts that, uh, that seem to be really interesting and entertaining as far as sermonic value. But the whole thing, one cannot be more significant than the other or one cannot be less significant than the other because each one is building toward the end of the age. So now there's a new king in Judah, Asa. Let's look at it and we'll be in, obviously, 2 Chronicles 14. Uh, and in the, uh, in the green, I have it listed, I think, the way that it is in your Bible. I'm re I, I take it from the Hebrew Bible and I think that my verse 1 is your verse 23 of chapter 13. So just keep that in mind. You, you may look and say, where is he? Well, just look at the other verse next to it and you'll probably see where I am. Okay. We go back to 2 Chronicles 13, or at least in the Bible that I'm using. Abijah slept with his forefathers. Now, he was a bad guy. He was, he was not a good king. They buried him in the city of David and his son Asa reigned in his stead. In his time, the land was tranquil for 10 years, 10 years of peace. It's interesting. The record of nations in all of history. And it's no different in the Bible. There's a constant struggle between nations. There's war, war, war. All the time. And God's Old Testament people had to struggle with that very thing as well because Gentile nations, of course, lorded over by their, the God of this world and his, his demon gods who planted ideas of gods and goddesses. Those those uh, nations in their darkness, they had no, they couldn't help themselves. They had to find what they believed was an appropriate time to try to destroy 
especially Judah, because Judah carried the promise of the Christ. So it's unusual to see a time of tranquility for 10 years, and the Holy Spirit takes note of it. Uh, and then we move on. Now, Asa did what was good and proper in the eyes of Yahweh his God. Now look, you know, everything rises and falls on leadership. This guy is committed to the word of God that he had in his day, which would have been the Torah, the law. He was committed to the, the spiritual precepts uh, and guidelines and principles of, of David, his forefather. Obviously disturbed by the condition that the nation was in when his father had died. So he's the king. He will make reforms in the land. He, remo he removed the foreign altars, high places, shattered the monuments, cut down the asherim. Now let me, let me emphasize the phrase foreign altars. The nation of Israel, though its sins were many, had a culture that basically was established by God and it emphasized the family unit. The importance of the fathers and the sons or the parents and their children. And the command here and there from Yahweh that the people were to take care to teach their children the law when they got up in the morning, when they went to bed at night. And their calendar had these strategic times during the year where the people were to be brought as the, brought before God as the people of God uh, to be reminded of the great care that God has for them. And this was a thing that really bonded and strengthened Israel and they had a strong culture. A, a culture, if you want to use modern uh, vernacular, if you want to use modern terminology, they were a, obviously a Bible-believing people. They were, the, they were the people of God. They had mandates to pay attention to the Word of God and to come together and to celebrate and worship God as a people from time to time. Not just that, but they had, of course, the place of worship where God had agreed to meet with them and deal with their sin. A loving and gracious God, a merciful God, a covenant God. So he established his covenant with these people and this was a strong culture. And the devil hates that kind of culture where the people are happy in the Lord and they are happiest when they come together in the Lord and, and they observe these special times and their families are strong and the family unit studies the word of God and is, is uh, taught the word of God by the parents, something that was a basic and element, elemental, elementary principle of their, of their culture, the Israelite culture as a nation. 
Then from time to time, a little here and a little there, foreign cultures would be introduced. Now those cultures would bring with them their gods and goddesses. Their worship was perverted and appealed, really appealed to the baser part of humanity, to the flesh. Therefore, the people seeing it as a worship thought, well, we can do this too. This is a lot of fun. And in the course of time, it takes a stranglehold. The worst part of it all was in the previous administration, the previous king permitted that kind of thing. And when, when, you're, when you just are, are lax in that kind of thing, the, the floodgates are opened and, and in they come. And so it spoils the people. Now, the, altar, the foreign altars in high places would have been everywhere. And this had affected everything. And now it even affected Solomon. You can go back to Solomon if you want to and think of how his wives and concubines brought into the land at the highest level. Foreign cultures, strange cultures, gods and goddesses that God had told his people never to be involved with. Don't ever worship a false god. Don't ever worship a graven image. Don't ever let it come in to the nation. But they did. And so it spoils the nation. Any nation that has a strong culture focused on the true and living God and the word of God is at its strongest and at its best when the people are strong enough and courageous enough to refuse the introduction of, of foreign cultures. Case in point, Israel. People, however, would come in and cast doubt. Just like it was the first trick of the devil. God told us this, God told us that. Yea, hath God said, is there cast doubt on the word of God. Then in the case of, of, of the modern Western world, the the um, the falsehood of Darwinism and then the introduction trying to appease Darwinism, the introduction into the church in the 1800s of Wellhausen higher criticism and, and then these, these egghead type people who think that they can, you know, create a, a, a new venue for faith and that the Bible is not dependable in matters of, of history and science 
only in matters of faith. Until today, people don't even think that the Bible is dependable for matters of faith. This is what happened. It's easy for me to see based on what I have observed in my lifetime in the Western world in general, in the United States of America in particular, it's easy for me to see what happened to these people in these days of the introduction of foreign cultures, pagan, uh, paganism, false religions, gods and goddesses. We, we are permeated with these same kinds of behaviors today. Now, people think that they're too smart to see it as a false religion or something. It's the same thing. It, it get, it get, the devil gets his same results. Because somewhere there is compromise. And finally, unbelief. I can see how this happened on more than one occasion. But a godly leader comes in. Asa, he's not going to permit this anymore. He removed the foreign altars in high places. He shattered the monuments and cut down the Asherim. And he commanded Judah to seek Yahweh Elohi, that, that is the Lord the God of their forefathers, and to perform the law and the commandments. We're going to get back to our Bible. That's what he says. We're going to understand that the Bible is absolute and it's infallible. And this is what it says. It was written in stone and we are going to be the people of God that we're supposed to be. And we're going to be back. We're going to get back to the Bible. Well, naturally, if you do that, you're going to have to forsake all of these gods and goddesses and foreign altars and so forth. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their forefathers and to perform the law, the law and the commandments. Now that's something that could be successful in that society because of the way they were structured and established. And the king took personal responsibility, son of David. Took it upon himself. He removed from all the cities of Judah, the high places, the sun images. And the kingdom was tranquil before him. And he built fortified cities in Judah because the land was tranquil. And there was no war with him in these years because Yahweh gave him peace. So in a time of tranquility and peace... Understanding the hatred of the world, he would build up his military forces. He would rebuild those fortified cities and make sure as they, were, as they ex extended across the land of Judah to make sure. It seems to me that this godly king would have known, you know, as soon as I come in here and tear down these altars and tell my people to get back to the Bible, as soon as I do that, the world's going to hate me and the world is going to come against me and my kingdom and I need to be ready. I think it's a beautiful picture 
I need to be ready for the fight that's coming because I am a king, a son of David, who wants to follow the way of David, my forefather. So he takes that time of peace and strengthens his army. And he said to Judah, let us build these cities and encompass them with a wall and towers and doors and bars as long as the land is before us. For we sought the Lord our God. We sought him and he gave us peace from round about. So they built and prospered. They turned away from their sin. They got back to the Bible, which was the Torah in their day. And they had peace. There was a tranquility in the land because obviously the fundamentals of family life reemerged. What wonderful and beautiful happiness to have the peace and the tranquility of family life before God. To worship as the people of God, the true and living God, and reject the ways of the world. You can, you can know all of the names that the other kings were calling Asa. You know, well, he's, look what he's doing. He thinks he's better than everybody else. He's kicking our people out, kicking our ways out. It didn't matter. He had the Bible. He had absolute reality and truth. And this is wonderful when you have a guy like Asa and nothing else matters. And Asa had an army bearing shields and spears from Judah, 300,000, and from Benjamin, Bearing shields, drawing the bow, 280,000, all these mighty wars, 580,000, an army that's 580,000 strong. Now let's go over to 1 Kings chapter 15. And it gives us a little more detail about what Asa is doing. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel in the north, Asa ruled over Judah. 41 years he ruled in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meachah. Uh, the daughter of Abba Shalom. And Asa did that which was just in the eyes of Yahweh, as had done David his father. And he abolished the male temple prostitutes from the land. And he removed the idols that his fathers had made. The, the, the Hebrew word is very clear. Now we saw this Hebrew word, what, a couple of weeks ago? I don't know. Where his father had allowed the introduction of this kind of thing, this perversion, this practice. He stopped it. He abolished the male temple prostitutes from the land and he removed the idols that his fathers had made. Everything that was wrong that he could see, he came under a conviction about and moved to put it away, whatever it was. He wouldn't allow anything from foreign culture to spoil his people and the ways that God had established for them. And we've seen these things. You and I have studied Leviticus, for example. All the way through Leviticus, God carefully and meticulously gives, uh, uh, gives the structure of their society. That they should carefully identify 
sin. And, you know, they had five offerings. Any kind of sin that you could think of, you were, you had an offering for it. Or if you just wanted deeper fellowship with God, there was a, uh, there was a sacrifice for that and so forth. It was, it was engraved in the hearts of the people for that generation and beyond. It, it continued. They had the word of God. They had here, they had the temple. Solomon built it. They had the application of what it was all about. They could observe it. They could participate in it. So there's no reason for any, any kind of influence that was evil to exist in the land. But little by little, since the time of Solomon, it was just endured, you know. It was tolerated. It was allowed. Didn't seem to do that much until it begins to bring destruction. So God raises up Asa, the king. Now, the Cushites, the Ethiopians. Now, Ethiopia, back in that time of history, for hundreds of years, were a, the Ethiopian kingdom was almost as strong as Egypt. And the Ethiopians and the Egyptians, especially in the time of Moses, were having all kinds of problems with each other. And Ethiopia was a very, very strong kingdom. The Cushites, they are the Ethiopians. They're called the Cushites in the original. So here's a king who's bringing his kingdom back around to righteousness, back around to the word of God, back around to true worship, to the acknowledgement of that which is right and that which is wrong with a focus on the word of God. Well, the devil's not going to let that stand. He's going to find a nation over there, and he controlled all of these nations. They were in darkness. Perhaps this, and we're going to see why I say this here in just a minute. This Ethiopian kingdom was perhaps... They were stronger than Egypt at this time. They didn't need the Egyptian king's permission to move outside and beyond their borders. They just they were they were a very strong empire. And so they are moved to come against and the only reason they would do it in my opinion is because of the prosperity and the peace that Asa had brought with the reforms that he imposed upon his people. So we're back in 2 Chronicles 14. Zed of the Cushite, Ethiopian. Cushite came against them with an army of a million and 300 chariots. Had, a million, had an army of a million men. Asa had an army of 580,000 men. Remember that? Now, we'll see something here in a minute that can cause us to think outside the line maybe a little bit. But can you imagine when the scouts 
of Judah come to bring the message to the king that there is a foreign army coming after Judah and this army is marching from a far, as far away as they can see. A million soldiers. Asa came out before him and they set the battle in array in the valley of Zephyr in Maresha. Man of God, what does he do? He prays. Asa called out to Yahweh, to the Lord his God, and he said, Yahweh, there is no difference to you to help either the great or the powerless. Their million and my 580,000, it doesn't matter to you what the odds are. Help us, O oh Lord our God, for we have relied on you and we have come with your name upon this multitude. You are Yahweh, our God. Let no man prevail against you. Now you see the heart of Asa. We're coming into this battle and this battle is a battle because we've relied on you. We've turned back to you. And the dark forces of this world cannot stand it. And it's their job to destroy us for no good reason other than the fact that we have returned to you. Basically what he's saying. We've relied on you. Now, we're coming here relying on your name against this multitude. You are Yahweh. Let no man prevail against you. So you see, the battle is simply this. The battle is, we are here in battle because we are Bible people and they hate us. We are people of the true living God and they hate us. They have no other reason but that. So we're coming in your name. Your name is what's being on the Put on the line here. That's what he's saying. Let no man prevail against you. I love the way the chronicler writes it. Yahweh smote the Cushites before Asa and before Judah. And the Cushites fled. And Asa and the people who were with him. Now there's an implication that perhaps once the Cushites are defeated, perhaps in the route of the Ethiopians, perhaps the half million or so, actually more than that, a little more than half million of the Northern Kingdom's armies, maybe that's what it means to the people who were with him. I don't know. They didn't need him. All they had was Yahweh. Bottom line, the forces led by Asa pursued them all the way to Gerar, and they fell from the Cushites until they had no life. I mean, they beat them into the ground and killed them. For they were broken, where? Before Yahweh. And before his camp. And they carried away very much spoils. And they smote all the cities around Gerar. Because the fear of Yahweh was upon them. 
They plundered all the cities because there was much plunder in them. And they also smote the tents of the livestock and they captured many sheep and camels and they returned to Jerusalem. This is sort of like an incidental thing that you don't hear much about in the scriptures, but yet, I don't know, that may be one of the biggest standing armies until Armageddon that the, that the Bible mentions a million, a million men, an army of a million coming against Asa and Judah just because they were Judah, just because they were in the name of Yahweh, just because they had returned to the Bible, just because they worshiped the true and living God and enjoyed their culture with God, their peace and tranquility and their festivals and feasts and enjoyed their worship during that time. But credit Asa, he knew. He knew that the people of God who are in the will of God won't stand long without an attack from the devil. And there they came. And Yahweh took the battle and gave them a crushing victory. It was such a crushing victory that they destroyed all of the cities out into those outlying areas where those people had come through and come from, took everything that they had, totally subtracted that kingdom from having any kind of economy or wealth at all and brought it back to Jerusalem, utterly defeating and destroying the people who wanted to bring that evil culture back in to the people of God. It's a great story. It's a great account of God and his people when they enjoy a time of peace and tranquility. We'll stop there and we'll have our uh, deacon prayer time.